Hi, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we're going to talk with Kristen Gonzalez about manufacturing in LA and the decision to run a small business that is rooted in community. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Danielle Arzaga. I'm Catherine Tedrow. And I'm Lauren Hill. We're the founders of Population, a change agency blending the creative and strategic to embed an integrated approach to sustainability into brand, marketing, and business model strategy. We convene the much-needed conversations about systems change by centering stakeholders across the entire value chain, all the way from supply to demand, to co-create the solutions to the biggest sustainability challenges facing our industry. Today, we're speaking with Kristen Gonzalez about manufacturing in LA and running a community-rooted brand. Kristen is the founder and creative director of Selva Negra, a Latina-founded contemporary fashion label committed to ethical production and sourcing sustainable materials while celebrating individuality through storytelling and expressive design. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's really um, exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. So you occupy a really unique space in the industry. We'd love to hear a little bit more about how you came to be in this space and what it looks like from where you sit. Yeah, I'll kind of just go back to the start of me kind of going into fashion. After when I first went to college, I initially wanted to do music. And so I was uh, doing a music major. And then I realized that it's not really something I wanted to do or uh, it just was it's a grind. It's it's even more of a grind, I think, than fashion, <laughs> to be honest. So then I was in California and I was really wanting a change and I loved New York. And I just was like, I don't care where I go. I just want to be in New York. So I transferred to a school there, went to school for marketing and not really my strong suit either. <laughs> I, you know, it, it's very interesting. I like reading about it and understanding the psychology behind Uh, marketing and and selling to people, but I'm not, it's not my strong suit at all. So after college, I, you know, really wanted to go to fashion school. So I went to FIT and did like a a one-year fast track there because of a woman who I had interned for in New York did that program. And and so I I, um, got accepted into that. And it was such a wonderful experience just being really hands-on with everything and just like learning about everything because I had been sewing since I was in high school, but I just didn't know too much about any of it. So it was really great to get hands-on experience. So after that, I stayed in New York. I kind of just worked in so many different jobs. I didn't really have, you know, I didn't really get a lot of experience in one part of fashion, which I do actually appreciate and I like that I got so many different aspects of fashion Mm. but I did you know retail I did merchandising I worked for a bridal designer doing um, embroidery and like actually sewing the garments together and you know all of that together and then I also worked for creatures of comfort and doing production and um, interning for them and I worked for Ralph Lauren and just like on the runway stuff like it was very exciting but also just like getting a taste of everything and trying to figure out where I wanted to go with that. However, you know, going through all of those things and working for large companies as opposed to small companies, 
I did definitely feel way more comfortable in a smaller company because the larger companies, it just felt so far removed. There was just so much waste happening with every single thing. They just like print out papers and papers and you're like, is it's not even necessary for you to do your job. So I just kind of, that's kind of like what I noticed. And then when I was in Brooklyn, I started uh, the brand and kind of working through it, not really knowing where I wanted to go with it. I just wanted to just like do something. And so we did the collection. I took like a month off, sewed everything. And the idea wasn't really fully forming yet, but I knew I wanted to bring my own culture into it because for so long and growing up in a very, you know, white space, I just always felt kind of ashamed of it and not really wanting to represent myself in that arena. And now feeling, you know, growing up and feeling more proud and wanting to like connect more to my roots. So that was a huge part of what I wanted to do in the future. And also with my culture, it utilizing your resource is a huge part of our culture is just kind of being scrappy just you Mm. know my mom was an immigrant my dad's parents were immigrants so you know they really worked very hard for their families and that's something I wanted to kind of portray through this brand so and also another thing I was telling uh, my fiance this morning I was like you know I actually started making this brand because I couldn't afford to buy the clothes that I wanted to wear Mm. and the fact that I you know knew how to sew and had all the resources and I knew what I wanted to do when I started this brand it kind of just all came together and seven negative was born so moving forward with that I didn't know too much about sustainability in the beginning but I kind of was learning more and more about it fast forward to six years later we really you know kind of honed into that you know that mentality and and just going for it and just working through it and trying our best to work through all of the little aspects of running a business while maintaining a sustainability mindset and ethical mindset has been not only a challenge, but also really exciting because it's something that we have full control over, Mm. you know, working for a, a large company there's no control you have over any of that, you know, to a certain extent, you know, if you're in leadership, you definitely have some sort of control. You can make decisions, but, you know, here in our small little business of, you know, five people, we're able to really have those conversations and talk through it and see how we can do better, even as a small business and with the tight, very tight funds that we have because we're self-sustained. So that's kind of, what my story is and where I'm sitting now. (laughs) Thanks for sharing. It's great to hear the aspect of your journey of having had so much experience at different locations, both with smaller companies and larger companies and the decision-making factors for you and deciding to start your own small business and work in the small business sector as opposed to a more corporate sector, which Mm -hmm. definitely has its challenges with not only, I think, kind of like the decision-making bureaucracy, but they can be such large machines that people who want to be very impactful in a positive way in their roles can sometimes, I think, feel like they're fighting an uphill battle. That's exactly what I felt like most of the time. And and it was an insecurity of mine of, you know, why can't I get along with, you know, authority or people, you know, in the manager positions. But I think it is because 
there is a culture with a lot of large companies to be more so compliant rather than creative. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was always something that I struggled with because people don't really want your opinion. They just want you to put your head down and work. But that's not how, you know, you create change within large companies. That's how you just maintain it a, you know, a flat line and not going anywhere. You're talking to the right people. We definitely <laughs> have that problem too. <laughs> do you do you feel like with Selva Negra you're like setting an example for bigger corporations? Do you ever kind of look to the future and hope that you are? Yeah, I definitely have that mindset. I mean, I I know that I'm a very small fish in a very giant pond. However, it does start with, you know, people just making a decision and and a conscious effort to put their business as like, as a standard, you know, because what other kind of impact would you want to make on this planet that you're living on rather than, you know, just doing something and just because it's trendy or because it's cool or because, and which, you know, I do appreciate that. I think that art in itself should definitely be something very inspiring and exciting. And, you know, not only do we try to do that with Salva Negra, but we're also trying to on the back end understand, okay, so how can we make less of the impact on this, you know, industry that has been so detrimental to the environment and continues to, with all of the research out there, continues to do that. So it's like, you know, we're still making new things, you know, we're not like reselling vintage, we're still making new things, we're still buying production and stuff. So it's not a hundred percent perfect, but how you can, you know, set a standard for people is just by doing it and not budging and making compromises with how you do your work in a sustainable way. Kristen, you spoke a lot about the complexities or the complications of working in these big corporations that are very bureaucratic, maybe not so hands-on. You have to like, you know, always report to someone else. You maybe feel like you're not really making any sort of progress. But what do you, do you feel like as a small business owner, like what are the limitations that you, you face or if any, maybe, maybe you feel like you have this kind of, you know, creative freedom or, or other. Yeah. I mean, the biggest limitation for us is money because we are a fully funded, self-funded company. And, you know, when you're buying inventory and, and putting money into the business, you have very limited options, you know, for what you can do. So, you know, in the beginning, we were buying plastic because there was not another option for us. But not to say that, you know, that was not at all a good option to do. I'm sure I could have done a little bit more research, but that's what, you know, that's what being a sustainable brand is. You're being more intentional about where you spend your money. And even as a consumer, you know, I'm very intentional about where I'm, spending my dollars and who I'm spending it on. So yeah, I think financially it is very, very difficult for brands to even just like last a couple years, you know? So money is definitely a very difficult thing to, you know, and and that's when you're starting a brand, you don't really think about that either. You're just like, I just want to make clothes and like sell them and like all that stuff. And you want to be an artist and you want to be really creative, but then money is the only way you can keep your business alive. So that's something that you have to be really conscious about. So that is definitely a huge limitation. In, and with a large corporation, you know, there's other people who handle those things. 
But when you're a small business, like you have to do all of it and really be like an expert on being very resourceful. And that's also a really great, I think, quality about being a small business and and trying the whole sustainable route for your company. You think that the paradigm of growth and sustainability is, or scalability rather, is contrary to sustainability or can they live somehow like together? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I thought about this one a lot because I, for the longest time, I was like, it's not possible. Like I just was not hopeful at all. I was just like, this is, if I want to scale my business, I'm not going to be able to be sustainable. Like this is just impossible. But I do think that there is a balance to be had because you can, once you, if, it's really hard to try to scale a business when you're you don't just have like a specific thing in mind. If you're just like I just want to be sustainable and like scale that, that's not a real plan. I think that if you start from the beginning, you have some a product that people really really want and on top of that, it's also sustainable and it's also just like you really really want people to want your product first. You want people to obsess over it. And then having that sustainable aspect of it is just like another added factor because unfortunately I realized over time that a lot of people don't really care unfortunately about sustainability like it's not really a people it's a buzzword people want it but then they actually don't choose what their values are most of the time so you know you want to really grasp people's wants like what they really, really want. And then on top of that, it also being a sustainable company. And then they're like, oh, this is awesome. I get best of both worlds. So I think that there is definitely a way to do it. It's just really, really difficult. All odds are against you, but you have to just have a really solid plan and business plan for scaling it up. And I, I am hopeful because, you know, I wanted to like bring up a company that isn't the greatest example, but it's the one that everybody knows, which is Tesla. So they, you know, they created like a luxury electric car, you know, and it's way, it's way better for the environment than, you know, gas powered cars. So what they did is they created a company that is like trendy and what really people really want. And it's, but it's also long-term, it's not just a trend, you know, it's, it's a way that the industry is going into now. So that's something that you can do with fashion for sure. It's just something that has to be something that people really want first. And you said you weren't a marketer. Yeah. (laughs) I am curious in that vein around your consumers or your customers kind of having it be the secondary value of it's sustainable too. Do you feel just out of curiosity that they're choosing you for the environmental side or the social side? One or the other is like, weighing more for them and their purchase from you? I would have to say it varies a lot of the time. I think that I'm learning more and more about our customer and I'm constantly surprised by them. But I think that what they do really want is something that lasts a long time. That's Mm. something that, you know, you, you know, when you buy something and you're like, it was an impulse buy. I don't know why I bought this and I'm not probably not going to use it. We're trying to be the opposite of that. You know, you want to be really intentional about it. So people really do spend a lot of time kind of like browsing over our website, researching us and really like getting to know us before they make that purchase. But once they do, it really does pay off because they become loyal customers and lifelong customers. And then they share that with their friends and family members. So 
I think that people are, you know, really intentional, intentional about how they shop with us because it's, you know, they're gravitated by the clothes first, you know, just like I said, they're gravitated by the product. And then they realize like, oh, this person or this company is sustainable. And they're also doing ethical practices. They're paying fair wages. Like this is exactly how we need, like, this is exactly the brand I want to support. So I think it varies. It really just, it depends. But I, going back to that, I think that people really just like to see cool stuff first. And then, and then that, that reels them in. So, so kind of moving to your business model from a production perspective, we're really interested in your sourcing locally in Los Angeles. And we're curious both, you know, the, some of the limitations that you might face in sourcing locally and kind of what the process has been like for you to find like-minded suppliers to work with in Los Angeles that are really values aligned with the, with your brand. Yeah. So we source, all of our production is, is made in um, Los Angeles more recently, we've been doing some knits in Peru. However, like our fabrics and our trims mostly come from Los Angeles, but they, some of them are from Japan, even Turkey, but it is very difficult to source locally because of the price, because, you know, the standard of, or the cost of living is much higher here. So everything is just way more expensive, you know, production, every single aspect of it to produce in in Los Angeles and it being ethical where it's, you know, a factory that's safe and safe working conditions and clean. It's very, very expensive to do. So I would say number one, that's the biggest limitation for us. However, time and time again, I do uh, keep relearning <laughs> that investing in really good products that are feel really good. Number one, especially for fashion, people love our and feel of our fabrics and also it being sustainable it it being a natural fiber it being organic recycled whatever it be people really really appreciate that so i think that even though there is that limitation it does the investment is always worth it at the end of the day and especially if we're investing in our planet and the future of the planet that is well worth whatever money it costs but in a practical sense, financially, it is pretty difficult to kind of work with sometimes. But do you find that your customers are kind of open to the price differential when you're sourcing materials that are better quality, more sustainable? Like while on the outset, maybe people are going toward the the less expensive product first, like what is your customers kind of like willingness to purchase things that are higher quality? Yeah, it takes a lot longer for them to purchase the higher quality item, but but when they do, it we get such great feedback from it from people and and that is something that is a long-term goal. You know, it's a long-term game that we have for, you know, getting people to purchase spend a little bit more because that's just what it costs us and in the long run they're going to be happier with their purchase, they're going to leave with a good feeling and they're going to keep coming back. Whereas if, you know, people go for a lower price point item, at this point, we don't necessarily have too many, you know, not great things to like, you know, we always at this point have like good quality pieces. Um, It was just more so like in the beginning that we kind of just were testing things out. We just, I just didn't know. So yeah, but you know, these days 
people are, you know, they do purchase with intentionality. Mm. But, you know, the lower price point items, we we did that on purpose so that people have that option, but it's still good quality pieces. We just, you know, as a business, it's really important to offer a good amount of price points for people mm-hmm. so that you have, you can capture more people without compromising, you know, our, our income and what we're worth, you know? So that's what I would suggest to other people is just to have like a good range for people. We'd like to jump to ask you about more in terms of your, your feelings regarding the SB 62 Garment Worker Protection Act that was just enacted in California, Mm -hmm. which will hold brand partners liable for paying their garment workers or the people who are producing their, their things. What do you feel like this law will, what kind of impact will it have on your business or on your suppliers specifically who are based in California? Yeah. So I actually have been working with the Garment Worker Center to help get this passed. So I was kind of like an early onset supporter of this bill and they have worked really, really hard to get it to, you know, to pass. So I'm really glad that it did because they tried in 2020 and it Mm -hmm. didn't. If anything, it affects us in a good way because it actually levels out the competition Mm -hmm. in a way where it's fair. Because you have, you know, Fashion Nova, Shein, all of these like giant companies who are producing in Los Angeles for, you know, a dollar an hour. For and probably on the piece rate system, which yeah. have you come in contact with that very much in your work? Yeah. I mean, it, the piece rate system is just something that has just been in industry for forever. And that's just how people price out things. For us, you know, it's just kind of like what people that's typically how sewers kind of like figure out how much they're going to pay their sewers. So it's going to be a process to kind of learn together on how we're going to, you know, change that because Mm. it is just the way that it always has been. But I don't believe that it's going to really change the pricing structure for us too much because it's just essentially what we have always been paying. But yeah, I do think that it's really, really important to be able to pay everybody a living wage, especially, you know, uh, large companies taking advantage of undocumented immigrants. And, you know, it's just a really horrible way to like, not only run a business, but be a human in this, mm-hmm. in this world that we live in, you know? And so it's really important to treat people fairly and to make sure that they are given what they're worth and being able to live in a country that is like one of the richest countries in the world. So. And I'm really glad that it's passing. It passed. It's interesting to hear you talk about it from the perspective of like, oh, it actually benefits your business because you've already been operating this mm-hmm. way. It's not surprising uh, mm-hmm. to see big brands and kind of like large industry associations push back against the Garment Worker Protection Act, kind of saying, oh, well, brands can't be held liable. They don't have control. It's out of our, you know, operational hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which kind of feels like an excuse. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of curious your perspective on that because as a small business, you know, you're talking about supply chain partners that you have and it's like, well, no, you feel very, you know, you feel confident that you're paying rates that are enabling employees and a manufacturer at a manufacturer to be paid a living wage. Mm-hmm. How much do you think brands just kind of large corporations manufacture excuses as to why they can't contribute to a system that is treating workers fairly? 
probably because they don't want a pay cut, <laughs> you know, like that's just what it is. I mean, large, large people in higher positions, they're, they get comfortable and they don't want to take a pay cut, unfortunately, in order to distribute the wealth to the people who, you know, are working probably the hardest on the brand and, and actually producing the clothes. The people who are in the, you know, the lowest income, like in a poverty level, they're not really buying from like fast fashion companies. You know, they are, you know, probably buying vintage or like, or just like getting things donated or just like things that are passed down. So I think that, and I'm saying this in regards to people saying that things, clothes need to be a certain price in order for other people to afford it. But I think it's actually the companies not wanting to compromise on that and thinking that they need to sell things at such a low price. But in in the end, you're actually not supporting the people who are actually at the poverty line, who you're creating, putting people in that poverty mm, line. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's not, I don't, I don't think, loop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, it's like an endless yeah. cycle. So yeah, I don't, I just think that people are not really willing to take a pay cut. We That's, have to agree with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, there's so many dynamics here that I guess going back to this idea of like entrenched business culture and kind of, you know, being very focused on the bottom line as being like the only like measure for success for a business, it seems like. Mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, I feel like we're still operating in this paradigm, even if people are talking more about other things that matter more. But we wanted to ask you so you firmly believe that building a better community starts with companies making a conscious effort to participate in the betterment of humanity. Do you feel like big organizations are too removed from their communities to do this well? Or is it, again, going back to this idea that they're just kind of choosing not to because maybe it would affect their their profits? Yeah, I think a combination of both. I think that they're just definitely choosing not to. There are so many ways for them to connect with their community, even just connecting to the people at the entry level, you know, people who are just starting and, you know, maybe even have been, even if they're entry level, they're still at that level and they've been working in that company for a year and they have ideas of how to, you know, help the community and the community culture within the, in the company, but the companies are choosing not to listen to them or to even consider their opinions as value. And I think that's where a lot of companies go wrong is because I do think that it starts within a company. You know, you can't really try to better a community if your own company is very flawed and there's a lot of holes in it and people aren't happy and it's just not working well because that's the first community that you need to serve. And then you're able to serve, once you have a your community that is being served and they're working really well together and it's just a positive company culture then you can kind of go out and really serve the other communities that your company may have previously underrepresented or just not served as much. So then you can go in and really do that. But I do think that it's most likely just because companies choose not to because they choose profits over people. When companies choose profits over people and over the planet, that's when you really notice that that company is not, they're in a short-term game. They're not in a long-term game. 
Kristen, you really, you've woven through kind of the challenges for the industry and the solutions really fluidly. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you can kind of get stuck in the challenges and not see solutions. And one of the ways that we really creatively see you bringing a new solution is kind of the intersection of the celebration of women and womanhood and women of color on your site and your womanism series. Mm -hmm. And we'd love to just have you talk about that more and what it's meant to you and what the implications are for you, for your brand, being a sustainable brand and what it means. Yeah, absolutely. So I, this kind of just stems back to, you know, growing up where I grew up and just not really feeling seen for who I was, I was just kind of coasting through and not really thinking that anything was special about me. And I wanted to ensure that people, especially in fashion, didn't feel that way and and did feel like they were being represented because, you know, growing up looking at magazines, it was one type of body, one type of woman, one type of eye color. So when we were starting to, you know, hire models and we wanted to do the marketing for everything. I was like, I wanted to make sure that we highlighted women of color because, you know, previously, especially in like high fashion or, you know, contemporary fashion, it was never really showcased at all. So we wanted that to be, you know, kind of a a standard for us and just representing ourselves and our culture and people who have maybe felt unseen or unheard as well. So that was one thing. And that's how kind of womanism started is that we wanted to show that women could have these really badass jobs and really be kicking people's asses in their field because they're just, you know, they just knew what they wanted to do and they went for it and they really just worked as hard as they could. And they, and that's what they did. And we wanted to share those stories with our customers and and with people because it they are very inspiring stories and those stories are really what drive young people to do certain things and you know make changes and make positive change within the world. So that's kind of how we wanted womanism to make an impact but also like a social impact on you know companies tend to shy away from having an opinion or political opinions about things. Me personally I'm very not shy about how I feel about things. <laughs> And as a company, I always wanted to ensure that people knew where we stood in political views, specifically, you know, for undocumented immigrants, for, you know, women's rights, for, you know, paying workers fairly, you know. So these are the things that we always knew that we wanted to portray in the brand. And I think that's what people really gravitate towards is that fact that we're not shy about it. We're very transparent about where everything comes from. We are very, very supportive of, of women and women of color in every field. And so that's really what we wanted to do with this brand. So, so essentially that's, that's kind of like where we wanted our morals and ethics to kind of focus into with this brand. And then on top of that, the sustainability aspect as well. So there's a lot of things. is interconnected. (laughs) Yeah. It's all interconnected. Yeah. The intersectionality of you know, politics of, of the people, the planet, all of it, it all is interconnected. So if you stand in your values of one thing, you can't shy away from the other. So it's a very, you know, all encompassing moral ground that we try to hold for space for, for the company. We wanted to ask you, so what 
is the number one question you are asking the industry right now in order to achieve real change? Or what, what is the number one question you think we should be asking to the industry right now? <sighs> this one I had a really difficult time thinking of because there's, I think, a lot of questions that we should be asking ourselves. But I think the one thing is that, is this the long-term sustainable option the planet? I think is the one thing because like the, the code red sustainability report that just came out is really, is really frightening and it's very scary to think about. And it's something that all large companies have the opportunity to change and Mm -hmm. to, you know, really look at their numbers and see how they can, you know, uproot every single thing that they know and just really make a change because they have the resources and the money to do it. So I think that's the the one thing I think that we should all be asking ourselves. And well, I'll get to another. <laughs> I'm like, you know, but also are you treating people fairly? <laughs> is also another thing. Because yes, of course the planet, but also the people that, you know, we are supporting and and uh, in the long term are we supporting future generations. You know, that is interconnected with the, is this a long-term sustainable solution? In my mind, like, are we treating people Mm -hmm. fairly, allowing people to thrive? Because if we're not from like a political perspective, we'll just continue to recreate the same challenges that we're dealing with now over and over and over and over and things won't, they can't get Mm -hmm. better without that. I think they're very, they're very much connected. So lastly, you are someone who is doing incredible work in the industry, and we were curious to know who is your unspun hero or someone who you see also doing amazing work in the industry that you'd like to give a shout out to. Yeah, I think um, I was going to say earlier, Aja Barber, she's an author and activist, and she's just, everything she posts and writes about is just very it's just very intentional and very thoughtful and you know something that I've always admired about her so I want to give a shout out to her because I would a love to meet her (laughs) and also I think she is a definitely a person to follow as far as like how we can all be better in the fashion industry well Kristen thank you so much for joining us it was really great chatting with you Oh, it was really great. Thank you so much for having me, guys. This was really fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Huge thanks to this week's guest, Kristen Gonzalez, for sharing her perspective on the industry. You can follow her on Instagram at selvanegra underscore or kristenita underscore. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at WeArePopulation or visit our website, WeArePopulation.com. Unspun is produced by Population, co-developed with Corey Cambridge, and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.